So can we all stand as we read the word of the Lord? This is Matthew uh, chapter 16, 13 through 20. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. And I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. And whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Then he sternly warned the disciples not to, let, not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. I am itching to travel. Anybody else itching to travel? Yeah, like, I'm just counting down the days. Uh, Doug Bauman and I have been talking about going and doing a mission trip, and uh, we were talking about we'd pretty much go anywhere right now. <laughs> and I, I just love, I love traveling. That's one of the things that I uh, miss quite a bit about uh, the season that we're in, the, the way the world's working. And um, so I've had the opportunity in the past to do a fair amount of missions um, mission trips and missionary uh, travels, and uh, one of my favorite places I've gone to over the last uh, 20 years has been in eastern Africa in the country of Kenya, and I love Kenya. I love everything about the culture there. I, I was fortunate to go there. Um, I think I've gone there about nine different times, and every single time I go there, I'm reminded about why I love the Kenyan people and we're hoping to be able to do a mission trip to Kenya again in the future. Um, but one of the things I love about Kenya is the people are the friendliest people in the world. Like when you get to, to actually most of Africa, I think this is true, but they're very hospitable. Just as a culture, hospitality is a really big deal. And so when you arrive, you are treated um, very, very well. They do everything they can to make you feel welcome. Well, a number of years ago, um, I think it was actually the second or third time um, I uh, was able to go to Kenya, we spent time doing a number of different things. And so, um, you know, we'll go over there and we'll spend time working with kids. Um, we'll have, like, vacation Bible schools. How many of you grew up going to vacation Bible school or you remember that? Okay, some of you have. And so they would do the vacation Bible school and, you know, have tons of, of games and prizes for these orphans that live in these orphanages. So it's really great. Um, a lot of what I've done is I've trained pastors when I go over there. We'll, we'll do classes for pastors on different theological topics and things like that. Uh, but one, one time I went there, we ended up um, doing a, a, a crusade, is what they called it, which I don't know if you know history, but the word crusade is not always the best word to use because it didn't always work out for other people, right? <laughs> and so I was like, you call it crusade? I don't know. Let's do something different. But we were doing a crusade, and... Uh, it was really uh, challenging because what would happen is the guy who I first started going to Kenya with, his name was Ben Bahadi, 
And Ben was notorious for just putting you on the spot. So all of you folks here who get a little, your feathers get ruffled because I'm like, yeah, you should pray right now. And you're like, I didn't sign up for that. I learned that from everybody else, okay? But I remember one day we were traveling to this, uh, to this slum. And, I, and, and there's a slum in Nairobi called Kaibera. And it's this massive, massive, massive neighborhood, essentially. Uh, in fact, they, um, they think that there's about a million people that live in this place. And I, just a quick picture is this, it's just this big, big location of all these houses, these little huts. And we're traveling into it, and, you know, we're going on these little roads. And I'll, actually, you can't see it on this um, picture, but there is this big central, um, I guess, park in the middle of it. It's just this big dirt field. And so when we're traveling into it, uh, I was informed that, you know, hey, you might get called on to, to do the sermon, to preach. And, you know, I hadn't prepared anything, and so I'm starting to, like, hyperventilate a little bit. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, what am I going to talk about, you know? And they're like, oh, you'll be fine. And okay. So we get in there, and um, over the next hour, they're doing music, and about 30,000 people show up in this big dirt field. So just imagine that. The 30,000 people, there's nothing else going on in this community because there's really low employment. In fact, the average um, amount of money that a person makes in this, in this slum is, is less than an American dollar. And so extreme poverty, um, you know, you, when you're there, you see it everywhere. Um, but these are the small huts that people live in. And so we're, we're there, and, and 30,000 people begin to, begin to show up inside of this, um, in this neighborhood. And, and, uh, and so sure enough, after some music gets going, um, all of a sudden, Ben's like, hey, I'm going to have my friend Luke Gardy come up here to, to talk to you. And they had built this big stage. And so... I was like, ah, oh, this is cool, I can do this. And I didn't know there were 30,000 people, by the way. So I start walking up the stairs, and all of a sudden, this you know, face just goes back further and farther and farther. And have any of you ever had a moment where you start hyperventilating, like for real, just out of curiosity? Have any of you? Yeah, like I'm full on like, <laughs> you know, and I mean, just like, oh my gosh, there's so many people here. And get up, and I, I, the only thing I can say is that I... I like felt like God's presence in a very discernible way and just like peace came over me. I prayed and then I shared a story from the gospels and I gave people an opportunity to respond to the gospel and thousands of people came forward to become Christians. And I was just like, oh my gosh, like that's amazing. And I think about that story all the time whenever I feel like, um, I don't know, it feels like sometimes we might not see the fruit in church that we want to see, or it feels challenging. I'm just reminded that, you know, there are places all over the world where people are coming to faith by the thousands every single day. Every single day. And, and I really believe with all my heart that God is at work, uh, that Jesus is on the move in the world that we live in. And, and so I've been thinking a lot about that because it's fascinating when you consider that Christianity started um, essentially 2,000 years as a continuation of the Jewish tradition, right? Jesus comes as the fulfillment, as the Jewish Messiah. And it's, it's Jesus and a handful of disciples that become the apostles. And then slowly the gospel begins to go out all over modern-day Israel, right, in the ancient world. And people respond to that. And more and more people come to faith. And 300 years after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, there were five to six million Christians. Just think about that. 
In, in less than, than 300 years, the church had grown from a small handful of people to being uh, around um, 15% of the Roman Empire, and it only grew, grew from there. And historians have looked at this, this phenomenon, and they have used a lot of different words to describe it because the church's growth was extremely improbable, and it was unlikely given that Christianity in the early centuries was considered by most to be obscure, Historians say it was very odd in its society. It was weird. And, and many of the beliefs that the early Christians had was, were culturally unacceptable. Like they did not make any sense whatsoever in the Roman Greco world. And think about this. Today, there are approximately 2.4 billion people that consider themselves Christians. So just in your mind for a moment here, consider that. The church grows from a handful of people to be numbered somewhere around 2.4 billion people right now. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing, right? Like when you really think about that, and that's not even taking into consideration the fact that for the last 2,000 years, millions upon millions upon millions of people have claimed Christ as their Lord and Savior. And so this has got me thinking a lot, Um, and and I think especially in, in light of the fact that many... Um, people today uh, maybe feel like, like the church is shrinking and there's a lot of fear and worry, concerned about whether we're going to make it. And, you know, there's all these different forces and, and things that would make us maybe feel like the Christian faith is, is struggling. But all over the world, Christians are, are sharing their faith and people are coming to faith in Jesus. In fact, I was um, studying this week when you think, close your eyes for a minute. Everybody close your eyes. It's dark anyway, but close your eyes. Like right now, if you think of what does the average Christian person look like in the world, just think about what, like picture them in your head, okay? Now contrast that with the fact that the average follower of Jesus in the world right now is a middle-aged Asian woman. Is that surprising compared to what you thought? Right, like we, 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 because what we see in our culture is one demographic. But if you take the whole entire world into consideration, the average, the the most amount of people, when you take the demographics out there, it's it's an Asian woman somewhere, probably in China, who's in the, in her in midlife, which is not forty, I was told. <laughs> but it's it's amazing. Like the church is not struggling in the sense of like dying or all of the different things that I've heard people say. Um, The church is not having problems. And I must add, really quickly, uh, when you study church history and you also study scripture, you'll see that persecution, every single time the church is persecuted, the church grows. The church grows. And so I think we need to take these things in consideration. So for today's uh, scripture reading, we read from Matthew chapter 16. And Jesus himself promised that he would build the church. And I think that's one of the most remarkable statements in the Bible, is that Jesus promised to build us, to build the church, the community of God's people. He promised that he would build it. And so what we're going to do in the, in the next couple of, uh, of months is we're going to talk about this and we're going to analyze how he's building his church and what it looks like. But before we do that, I want to pray and then we'll get started. So Father... We thank you for this opportunity that we have to gather in the name of Jesus. And I thank you that the church is not a building. The church is not a set of chairs. 
The church is not a website. The church is people. And despite the challenges that we may be facing or the obstacles that are before us, we are not the first community of people that have obstacles. We are, we are in line with this great tradition of people who have been able to lean into the Holy Spirit's presence and power to be able to continue the mission that you gave us. And so we welcome your presence here this morning, and we ask that you would speak to us and challenge us and encourage us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So our culture, our culture, interesting. I, every month I um, have a day where I ask my kids, you know, like, hey, we'll get whatever you want uh, for dinner or for lunch, and we take a vote. And yesterday I made a huge mistake because I asked my son after his football game, what do you want? And can anybody guess what he said? It wasn't pizza. It wasn't Chinese food. I would have been very happy about that. It was that terrible place named McDonald's. Yeah. And every time I'm like, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Because when you get to the thing, you see the double quarter pounder, and it just says, order me. Right? And so I did. And after I got it, I, as I was eating it, I was like, this isn't going to be good. I just know. I'm 41 now. I can't handle this. And sure enough, I just felt like, oh, I just feel gross and like, I don't know. And I apologize if you work there. I like your establishment. It's great. But I was not really happy with, with the choice. But there's something really, I don't know. It's like we can't say no to fast food. And, and in our culture, in our society, we are impressed by things that are fast and are quick and are easy. Are you with me? Like everything in our culture is, is, is encouraging us to make choices and decisions that are easy and that are, are fast. And, and so I think it's really interesting that our culture is about power and explosiveness and things like that. But the question I think we have to ask ourselves, are these cultural assumptions the way of the kingdom? Are they the way of the kingdom? In 2016, a, a scholar by the name of Alan Kreider suggested that one way to think about the church's growth over the course of history is to use the metaphor of the process of ferment, of ferment. And so he talks about this idea of fermentation. And fermentation is the process in which the activity of microorganisms bring about the desired change to food or beverage. It's slow. It's steady. You have to be patient in the middle of ferment. You have to know, I think when we're using this word to describe the church, you have to know that God is at work. One of the early church fathers' origin once called God's work his invisible power in relation to the church. And, and listen to how Alan Kreider talks about this. He says, The church's growth was not susceptible to human control, and its pace could not be sped up. But in the ferment, there was a bubbling energy, a bottom-up inner life that had immense potential. It had immense potential. I think that we need to have this bubbling energy. Amen? Like, we need to have this bubbling energy. We need to have this invisible power in order for us to continue to grow both personally and collectively as a church community. And so that's why we're going to look at, for this next, next season, we're going to spend some time in a sermon series that we're calling Ancient Ferment. And we're going to talk about biblical values that were, um, were true in the past, 
And they're also true in the present, but they're also going to help us to, to move forward in the future. And so I'm excited about spending some time looking at these different values and characteristics. And, and I think that's maybe something that would be good for us to think about today as I just introduced this, this topic. You know, according to church history, scholars suggest, and I've been reading lots of books on this, on this topic the last couple of months, scholars suggest there's a number of things that the early Christians were known for and were committed to. There, there were just certain things that they, they did, and those things that they did helped help the Christian faith spread all over the known world. Followers of Jesus were so committed to certain, certain practices that the Bible taught that they were known for it. And, and so I think it's important to, to note a couple things about that. Is that the Christian faith has always been a combination of beliefs and actions, or faith and activities. It's never just been about what we believe in our heart. It's actually always been a combination of what we believe and also how we act. And so one way that I think people have talked about this is with this idea of, of head, heart, and hands. Head, heart, and hands. We want to have you know, the knowledge of the gospel, the teachings of scripture in our mind. We also want to have it in our hearts with our emotions, but we also want it to impact the way we live our lives. Does that make sense? It's this, and people will call it the activation trinity. If we have all three things of this focused on, for example, the kingdom of God, then it actually changes the way that we function in our, in our lives. Amen? Like it actually impacts the way we interact with people or live, about, live our lives uh, for the glory of God. And so we're, we're seeing this all throughout, throughout, throughout the, early, um, the early church. And so here's another thing that Alan says that I think is really helpful for us when we think about this. He says that the historical sources, and he has this really great book called, um, called The Patient Ferment of the Church. He says the historical sources rarely indicate that the early Christians grew in number because they won arguments. Instead, they grew because their habitual behavior, rooted in patience, was distinctive and intriguing. Their habits and dispositions enabled them to address intractable problems that ordinary people faced in ways that offered hope. When challenged about their ideas, the early Christians pointed to their actions. They believed that their habits and dispositions, their embodied behavior, was eloquent. Their behavior said what they believed. It was an enactment of their message, and the sources indicate that it was their habits and dispositions more than their ideas that appealed to the majority of the non-Christians who came to join them. Now, I know that's a long quote, but here's the point. What he's saying is that the early church didn't stand out and just debate people all the time and win people to the church. How many of you would agree that that is not an effective way? Did anybody in this room come to faith because somebody argued with you well? No. Like, has anybody found that that's actually pretty ineffective? <laughs> right? Like, I'm going to get on this Christian message board, or I'm going to get on social have any Have any of you changed someone's opinion on social media? No. Right? It's just, it's not a very effective way. But what is effective, I think, is, is having conversations, but having it match our, our lives, though, right? Like, we have to actually appeal to our actions. And I think all of us, what is so frustrating, and I've talked to so many people about, about politics and the political world right now, the thing that's so frustrating for mo most of us is the inconsistencies and the hypocrisies that we see our politicians expressing, right? Like, 
you guys can't do this, except for when I do it, it's okay. Right? Are you with me? Like, it's frustrating. It's like, what in the world? Right? And so it's the hypocrisy, the, the lack of consistency in what, what we say with our actions. And, and the early church was committed to proclaiming the truth about the gospel and the truth about the kingdom, but they also lived that out. And the world saw that and said, these people are different. And that's what scholars say caused the massive growth of the church over the course of history. So today I want to introduce us to some of these habits and dispositions that Kreider talks about. And I briefly, really briefly, want to set the table. Now, I want to say briefly because I was reading some historical church fathers and I stumbled upon this hilarious quote from a certain church uh, father who said, many artisans in his church employed in manual labors and who earn just enough at their daily work to provide for their own nourishment are surrounding him and obliging him to keep his sermons brief. So, in the early church, they didn't have 19-hour services like many people believe. Okay? And so I think we're going to briefly set the table just to, just to think about what we want to be pointing our ship, what direction we're going to talk about in the next month. And here's what I want to say. So what characteristics should we embrace? What are the dispositions and habits and practices and beliefs and commitments and values that caused the church to go from a small handful of people to being millions upon millions upon millions of people large? And today, we're in the billions of people. That's what I want to do. Or, or maybe another question would be, how does Jesus build his church? What are the characteristics that the church had? And the first one is this. I think we see they were known for love. Next week, we're going to be talking about this because next week is, anybody know what Sunday is? Husbands, this is important. No. Thank you. It is valent. Husbands, get your phone out right now. Okay, and just put that, it's Valentine's Day, okay? And so next week, we're going to talk about the actual, it's pretty cool. There was a saint named Valentine who that, that holiday uh, stole everything from. But we were, the Christians were known for love, and we have to be known for love. And I want to mention that love is, is totally misinterpreted, misdefined, and misapplied in today's society because we think it's just about like this emotional, gooey, Feeling, But, you know, Jesus and the Bible teaches us that if we love Jesus, we obey his commandments. And so truth is wrapped up in, in grace and mercy, but it's also wrapped up in, love is wrapped up in truth, right? We want to have this combination of all these things. And so we're going to talk about that. Uh, the early Christians were known for the, the P word. Don't say it. Do not say the P word. How many of you ever said, Lord, I'd like you to make me more... And found out what happens. Anybody? Okay, let me tell you what happened this week. So I've been reading all these different historical books and developing the sermon series, and I was studying a chapter on patience. And, and uh, two days ago, I was reading Friday, I was reading on patience, and then I did my devotionals, and I was reading all these passages about patience, and I was like, Lord, I would like to be more patient. I realize that I'm not the most patient person ever. And then I got done. Closed my Bible, and then I walked outside, got in my car, and I drove up to Reading to go to the dentist. And I was there for three and a half hours. And I was, I was sitting there, and I was like, this is not what I meant, Lord. And then it gets better. I got done with my dentist appointment, 
walked out to the car, and I remembered that this coming week's my birthday, which means my license is going to expire. So then I went to the DMV. And I'm not even joking. Both situations, I was like, I hate that P word. And I texted Don, and I told the kids, I was like, man, I just went to the dentist and the, and the DMV, and I'm like, I'm like seven hours in. And Don said something like, don't say the P word. And it's true. But here's the thing about patience. Think about this fast culture that we're in, this fast-paced culture and how everything is about immediate gratification. We don't wait for anything. The, the society is shaping us in a way we, we don't, where we don't even take the time to think about the decisions that we're making. We just have this idea that whatever we want, we should have now. There's no concept of patience. In a, in a culture where patience is minimized, how much does patience make a difference in the world we live in? Like when you think about people who are patient, isn't it true that we'd all acknowledge that there's something different and unique about that? Amen? And so patience made a huge difference. In fact, that was one of the primary things that a number of historians say made all the difference in the world because the Greco-Roman world of the ancient Christians was the same way. It was fast. It was all about immediate gratification. And we live in the same type of society now where we need to slow down. We need to, we need to embody the values and the teachings of Jesus, which means we wait for certain things and not just get it right away because that's the way that God intended so patience is important. And don't go to the dentist and the DMV on the same day. That's also another point. But they were also known um, for their commitment to healing. This is what I think is really interesting. In our tradition where we're charismatic, we believe the Holy Spirit does things. We pray for people's healing. I was surprised at how many different examples through the first three to 400 years of church history where we see people, um, the early Christians, appealing to healing. People were coming to faith in the midst of massive plagues because the Christians were praying for people who were experiencing those sicknesses and they were being healed miraculously by Jesus. And so there's this massive commitment to healing. And so we're going to learn about that too and find different practical ways to be able to pray for people's healing. Another thing is they were known as peacemakers and they were committed to friendship. And I've said many times in the last... Um, well, months is that, you know, right now, like one of the m most important things that we could have is community and relationship. Like where society is stripping us apart and wanting us to isolate and not be in community in many ways. What, what's happening is we're suffering from that. And so that's why I remember, you know, in the summer after, you know, months and weeks of just trying to be careful and follow the protocols. And, and, and then one day I remember a, a friend of mine, we, we were like, oh, let's meet up for coffee. And so we met um, outside and we were sitting there and just drinking coffee. And I was just like, it's the best thing ever. Have any of you found that to be true too? Like after you've maybe been disconnected for a little bit, when you get together with people, you find out how it's so good for us. And we've said as a church, we want to, we want to value physical health, but not at the expense of emotional, spiritual, mental health as well. Amen? Are you with me? And so, I mean, I think that the value and the known for peacemaking and for friendship is a significant thing in the early church. In fact, you know, many church fathers wrote entire books on friendship and the value of spiritual friendship. Like, I would not be here today following Jesus if it weren't for relationships with other followers of Jesus. And many of you know the stories I've shared in the past, but like, Don and I, when we got married, 
You know, we grew up in church. Um, We weren't pastor's kids, but it felt like at times we were. Because when I was growing up, you were at church Sunday morning, Sunday evening. You had to go to your small group or kinship group on Tuesday night. And then there was Wednesday church. And then there was probably some prayer meeting at some point in time before Saturday. Okay, so I was at church like all the time. And I was like not into that. Okay, and I'm still not into that. <laughs> like, like, oh my gosh, five days a week? Oh my gosh, that's crazy. Good for you if you like that. But it's, it's excessive. And I, and I really was struggling. And so Don and I get married, and I think we kind of interviewed each other. Like, how, how committed to church are you? Well, how committed to church are you? I'm like, a little bit. She's like, I'm a little bit too. Okay, cool. Let's not go to church for a while. And so we get married, and we're like, we're like struggling, though. Because we didn't have community, and our faith was struggling, and we started going to this, this church, and every single time we go to a church, the church would try to get us to be the youth pastors, because they were desperate, and we were like dodging that bullet, I mean, that opportunity. And, uh, and so we eventually started going to the small group. And we had this community of people that we formed relationships with, and every single week we got together with them, we read scripture together, we prayed together together. And we shared life together. And it was in the midst of that community that when we had these massive um, life challenges, whether it was, it was um, losing our first pregnancy and really going through this miscarriage of, of, of being pregnant with twins and Don having a miscarriage and us trying to figure out what do we do now and, and all the losses and the grief that came with that to then when we had our, our next pregnancy, like going through having a, a child together. It was community that helped us get through that entire process. And the early church was known for that. They were known as a place where if you need to have relationships, you can come into the community of faith, the church, and you can experience relationship in fact, they were, they were using this word that no one in that world used for people that weren't blood relatives, but they used the word family to describe what they were. They used the word family to describe this. When you look around this room, I think the goal is to have us look at each other as if we are family. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We're actually relationally connected in a way that's, that's deeper than just your, hey, how are you doing? And so that's what the church was known for in the ancient world. Another thing that the early followers of Jesus were committed to was to this idea of head, heart, and hand. It was holistic. And I'm, I'm telling you right now, this is still so needed. I just, like, I, I think a lot of times, depending on what church tradition you're in, you pick one of these three. Like, you know, there's some church traditions that are all about the head. It's all about intellect. It's all about theology, and it's all about the intellectual life, the life of the mind, and they know every single thing about theological topics, and they can answer every single question. But when it comes to emotion, heart, or hand, they might not prioritize those things. And then there's other traditions, and this is really similar to us, where it's a lot about heart. Right? Like when you go home, you're like, oh my gosh, church is so good. Oh, really? What was so good? I just felt so warm. Like, well, the air conditioning was off. The heat was on. So maybe that was it. No, I just felt like just the, the goosebumps. Anybody ever get goosebumps during church? It's okay. You do, right? Like, and that's good. Like God touches our, he created our emotions and he touches our emotions and that's a good thing. But if you, if you only are appealing to your feelings, how many, would you, how many of you would agree that feelings is sometimes deceptive? 
How many of you wake up some days and you don't feel like God loves you? Right? Like you need the truth. You need to lean into the life of the mind to remind yourself that God does love you and that, that the Bible teaches us things about the kingdom of God that we need to appeal to. So it's head, heart, and then we also, like I think many of us in this room, like I'm so sick and tired of dead religion, amen? Like I'm not looking to just start a community where we do a lot of talking and a lot of feeling, but we don't put our actions you know, into practice where we are not living these things out. And so the early church was committed to these things. They were willing to engage in the life of the mind. They wrote entire treaties defending their faith in a cultural um, milieu that was attacking their worldview. And they also, they were, they were a, known, they knew that God had created their emotions and they were consciously engaged in trying to provoke their emotions toward loving God and toward loving other people. And then they also were actively engaged in, in hospitality and doing good works and serving the poor and, and loving people with their actions. And so I think we need to have the same commitment. Another one that, they, that you see time and time again is they were known for their holiness and piety. Um, they were known for coming into the church community, being discipled, trained, taught what the Bible taught, and then the Holy Spirit was working in their lives to where they would surrender their lifestyles to Jesus and would begin to give up certain practices as well as take on certain practices in order to become more like Jesus. And we're known for that. And I honestly think that this is something we need to really consider too. We need to, we need to live this out too, right? Like it's okay to have biblical standards and values. And I think this is the danger. I've thought a lot about this. Like, part of the danger, I think, for many of us is that none of us want to go into a church community where people are judging us all the time. Are you with me? Yes? Right? Like, I, I don't want to go to a place where there's somebody at the door with the, with the list keeping track of every single thing that you posted on Facebook and said. Amen? Are you with me? Like, we're not looking for that. Right? But there's also this other flip side to where if there's no value for holiness or piety or personal transformation, that we are lowering the bar on who we're trying to become like. But the goal here, all of you need to know, the goal for us is to be more like Jesus. Like that's the goal. And Jesus was perfectly sinless. Okay? And so we're not going to get there in this life. I'm not suggesting that we will, but we should work really hard to try to. Amen? Like, that's the goal. And so that's, that's what they were known for. And then finally, they were known for their hospitality and their commitment to evangelism. The early church, they did everything they could to extend hospitality to the world around them and to one another. And they did that out of the authenticity of their relationships, but they also did it because they wanted to help share the message of who Jesus was with everybody around them. They actually valued people's relationship with Jesus. Let's stand up together. Jesus said that he would build his church. And so what does it look like for Jesus to build his church? Is it means that the Community that is gathering together is more loving, they're more patient, they're committed to healing, they're peacemakers who value relationships, they, they use their head, their heart, and their hands, they're known for their holiness of being like Jesus, they are known for extending and expressing hospitality, 
and they're committed to helping other people come to know Jesus. And, and that whole thing about helping other people come to know Jesus, like why is that? Why, why are we wanting to commit ourselves to that? Well, like it's been really common for people to say like, well, we want people to go to hell. And I want to just go on a record. I don't want to go to hell. Anybody else not want to go to hell? Okay, I'm, like, I'm like, hell, I don't want to go there. But the primary motivation, I think, for the early followers of Jesus was this, this, this understanding that when you come into a right relationship with God, you actually flourish. Like Jesus said, I came to bring abundant life. So what does it look like to have abundant life? And is it, if it's so transformative for you, if you have come to know Jesus and you're walking that out, would you not agree that you want everybody else you know to experience abundant life too? Like just think about that. And I'm just going to encourage you just to close your eyes right now, just for a few moments. We're going to receive communion in a moment. And if you don't have the elements, the, the, the little cup here, um, you can get that out in the foyer, and we would encourage you to do that. You're welcome to join us. Um, but as you have your eyes closed and your heads bowed for a moment here, we talk about this idea of abundant life and what it looks like to, to know Jesus I just want to encourage you right now with with this idea, this opportunity that we have. Maybe you're here and you have never made a decision to follow Jesus. Maybe you... You were invited to come here this morning. Maybe it's been a while since you were in a church community. And maybe you've never made that decision to follow Jesus. And I just want to share really quickly with you the gospel. The, the good news of, of the kingdom of God is this, is that I think everybody in here, if they're honest with themselves, would admit that we have a problem, and the Bible calls it sin, to where we, we resist God's commandments. We are not always kind to people. We, we don't treat other people like we treat ourselves or want ourselves to treat it. We have this thing called sin. We're, we're broken. And so the Bible's solution to that was not just to um, have God throw down lightning bolts and destroy everybody. God's solution was to provide a way for us to have salvation. And the way that God did that is by coming in Jesus, who is fully God, fully man, who walked on this earth some 2,000 years ago and did it perfectly sinless. He didn't sin. He did everything right. And then even at the end of his life when he had been perfect, he was unjustly condemned by a court of, uh, a court of, of, of his peers and was sentenced to crucifixion. And then he was nailed to a cross and he was, he was murdered. And he died, and he did that for our sins. He took all of our sins on himself. And then we read in the New Testament that whoever believes in Jesus, who places their faith in him and says, he is my Lord, I want to follow him, they are invited into his kingdom. And so if you've never made that decision, you've never ever said, I would like to be a follower of Jesus, with everybody's eyes closed, heads bowed right now, if you've never done that before, but today you want to make that decision, I'm just going to ask you to do one thing right now, just so we can, we can know you're here and we can pray for you. But I'm just going to ask you just to put your hand up. And, and that's your way of saying, today, I want to make that decision. 
I want to say yes to Jesus, and I want to receive Jesus for the first time and begin a relationship with him. Okay, I see that hand. Is there, is there anybody else that wants to do that? Now, maybe you've been disconnected for a while, and you have not been walking your faith out. It's been a while since you really were, were connected to Jesus and the kingdom, and today you want to renew your faith, to, to recommit your life. If you want to do that, I'm just going to ask you the same thing, just to lift your hand up right now, just so we can pray for you. just want to know if there's anybody here that's, that's wanting to respond that way. Okay. Is there anybody else? Okay. Pray for each one of you right now. So, Father, we thank you for these individuals who, by your grace, are responding to your, your invitation. And everywhere we read in Scripture that if we will deny ourselves and to repent of our sins and to, and to do what the Bible calls repentance, which just means to turn our, our lives in a different direction, to begin thinking in a new way about, about you, Lord, that you would respond to that and that you would give us mercy, that you would grant us faith and grace and we would begin this relationship. And so, Father, I pray for each one of these people, Lord, that today as they take that step, Lord, we just thank you for your grace. We pray that you would help each one of them to continue to grow, not just just to raise their hand and make this one-time thing, God, but to begin a, a lifelong relationship. you just give them more of your grace, more of your presence, more of your truth, that your spirit would right now begin to transform, begin to transform them to be more like Jesus, that you would help them to know your love, to help them to know that your, your, what your values are and your, your teachings are as they begin to read scripture and pray. We thank you, God. Go ahead and open your eyes now. Hey, church, um, a number of people made a decision today to follow Jesus or to recommit their lives. And the Bible actually teaches multiple places that that is something that we celebrate. Amen. So I don't know. seems like it's appropriate to do something. Um, so we're going to receive communion in a moment here. And I'd like to read... Uh, from the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus institutes this sacrament and he um, demonstrates for us the value that we have here and why we receive this on a regular basis. But as you may know, Jesus had a group of his, uh, his friends, his community together, and they were all hanging out together and they're enjoying a meal. And it says in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26, it says, as they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, Take this and eat it, for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and said, Each of you drink from it, for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. Mark my words, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And so this morning as we 
peel the top and hold up the bread, we are reminded about how this is the bread of life. This, this points to Jesus, the bread that has come down from heaven. Let's receive together. And as we hold up the cup, which is a sign, a symbol of the shed blood of Jesus, the new covenant of grace, let's receive together this morning. And then we're going to now pray the Lord's Prayer, which will be on the screen. So if you would join me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And so Heavenly Father, we pray for your grace. We pray for your continued work in our lives. And we ask that you would go with us and help us to live out these values, these habits, these dispositions, these ways of living in order to bring you glory and to help other people to encounter your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.